It's Marooned oh on Mars with Matt and Hillary. Uh, that's right. Uh, and a very special guest is with us today. Guess it, who it is? <laughs> who is it? I don't know. Uh, it's Kim Stanley Robbins. Hi, Hi. folks. Uh, wow. I got to see the intro in person. I got to see their faces instead of their beautiful voices. What an incredible experience. I feel Happy like here. I don't think we've ever done it in front. We actually have done it in front of. Uh, cats. Two people want cats, cats. and yeah. two people once before when that in, that uh, episode got oh, episode. unfortunately erased oh. because the computer. Oh, oh. And also, we were all hysterical. We were all hysterical. It wasn't a very good episode. Uh, so anyway, we are uh, at the O'Hare Hilton of all places, um, meeting Stan on a layover, which is extremely generous of you to be willing to do this. I have to say it's a six-hour layover. <laughs> so we're doing you a favor, basically. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for coming out. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So I think, um, you know... I feel like before we started doing this podcast, I would have had a much better idea of what I would ask you if I actually met you and got to talk to you about the Mars Trilogy. And now I feel like after a year of thinking about this stuff, in some ways I'm like deep enough inside it that it's hard to kind of... It's hard to pull pull out the sort of reflective stuff that seems like it would make good questions, although I do have some scrolled questions, and I think Matt has a bunch of questions too. I have some questions, but I wrote them while I was high, so... I have some questions, too, but um, yeah. let's go with yours first. Mm. You, go, you start. Um, thank you. Uh, so, this is kind of a big one to start out with, but I was thinking about this this morning. So, you were re- you reread at least some of Blue Mars recently? I, I reread the whole thing. And are there things that... I mean, so part of this was spurred by when people talk to me about these books now, they always talk about terraforming, and they talk about the novels as though it was just really obvious that these are novels that are about climate change and anthropogenic climate climate change, um, and they give you ways to think about these kinds of problems, which I, I think seems right, but also, of course... Uh, probably is not exactly what seemed like their kind of major thematic or motivation when you were writing them in the 90s. I wonder if you thought about that kind of like historical transition between when you wrote them and what they kind of do or seem like now. Yeah, I. it's hard to get my mind back to where I was then. but And I noticed, I think it's in... Well, it's in Red or, or, or Green Mars where Anne says something to the effect that now they're terraforming Earth, too, because they're doing mitigations. In fact, they're throwing um, uh, dust, in, uh, uh, iron filings into the ocean to cre- in that, in that uh, geoengineering way. Well, that um, 
without having the total picture of climate change, uh, it had been identified, but it wasn't really what this book was about. But since uh, I was terraforming Mars and it was becoming more and more of a of an issue, I think I was just groping my way around to the idea that, wait, we may be doing this on Earth too, without ever thinking, because the phrase climate change didn't exist. So they would talk maybe about global warming, and that goes back into the 60s, these little precursor, oh my God, we're heating up the Earth because of our, our carbon burn. But mostly, the... It was more um, about the political situations, about the the kind of uh, at the end of the Cold War, anything could happen. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, let's have a mm. modeling exercise of that on Mars. And, and the, the geoengineering stuff, it surprised me to see it there. Yeah. That, I mean, that was one of the questions I had, but uh, from the perspective you just brought it toward, which is you're writing these books after the so-called end of history, this Francis Fukuyama um, essay where the Soviet Union has collapsed and he declares, you know, that uh, the historical struggle between capitalism and communism is, communism is over. And uh, I was wondering if, if that was a self, if part of the books was a self-conscious response or rejection of that premise that, uh, no, ab- ab- absurd, right? That uh, struggle will continue, that capitalism is not the end of history, um, that there's plenty left to sort of tell in the human story or something like that. Well, yeah, <clears throat> the Fukuyama thing struck us as ridiculous, and I say us because I mean the leftist community. Um, <clears throat> we were um, hard leftists in the 70s and admiring of places like Cuba in particular, uh, and China was interesting. It was a, a, there was a, a second world. Uh, there was a uh, actually existing socialist world, and obviously it was messed up badly. Um, but a lot of us would have said, "Well, this is because the capitalist world is crushing them; they're under pressure." This was an old leftist thing. I don't know if any of it's right. I mean, I'm still a leftist, but there's lots of room for error in every mind uh, politically. So um, it wasn't going to be the end of history. And in 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 when I began around '89, it was. Uh, uh, everything was changing really fast, and the notion was don't throw out uh, baby socialism with the Stalinist bathwater. So what could be rescued out of the left project, and, and go back to maybe Orwell, who always insisted on being a democratic socialist. Okay, democratic socialism, and that was even a phrase, and social democrats was a uh, you know, political movement. So um, it was a retrenchment kind of feeling and a stepwise feeling towards... But also, weirdly, I mean, Clinton winning, now this looks ridiculous in many different ways um, because he, it turned out to be so bad in so many ways. But, but it was after Reagan and Bush. He was, it was, it, we were running around like at the death of Sing, uh, Thatcher. We were singing Ding Dong, the Witch is yeah, Dead yeah. when Clinton won that election. So there were hopeful signs as well. So I, it was really confused. I feel a, a str- uh, kind of a resonance with that too because I remember when Obama was elected, I was here in Chicago. We were out in Millennium Park. We were all super hopeful. And so much of that hope was about Bush isn't presented president anymore. Oh, you know, yeah. like that was a, a big part of the relief. It was a more of a relief, even more than the kind of hope and change thing. It was like 
yay, this guy is gone. We yeah. have a new guy that we, you know, but, and it, and you know, the way that that has turned out too, uh, you know, it's, it's not as, uh, hopeful or as, um, what, yeah, what optimistic as we well we the, the, the Obama years were what they were. They're better than now, but they weren't as exciting as we had hoped. But also, Bush two was done. He had yeah. done his eight year, which was Clinton beat Bush yeah, one, yeah, and yeah. Bush one could have won. So there was this euphoria. I actually went out to the Village Green and played "Happy Days Are Here Again" <laughs> on my trumpet. It, uh, um, which I, mem- I memorized. It's not a hard tune to learn. <laughs> and I went out there and I blasted it in my village green at, at about, you know, midnight or, you know, 10 p.m. And I felt really glorious. So this was uh, the, the context for starting the Mars books. But then they went on through the, you know, it was clear that, that capitalism was rolling and, uh, and they were dismantling Russia with this, an incredibly brutal um, capitalist takeover. The oligarchy was established, and we did the transition was done stupidly. So we live in a post-stupidity world, which is always true. But that was it was discouraging. I mean that I that makes me think like um, about the way in which uh, revolution happens in the Mars books. I mean the. I just think that they're so, um, like the way those novels think about what history is, is both uh, really demanding that you think about these kind of on the ground situations that are just a mix of all kinds of historical forces in which it becomes quite hard to, you know, telling any kind of story is only going to be a partial story, right? Um, uh, And that means that like politics is always going to be you know, hopeful to some extent, but also compromised to some extent because it, you know, it has trouble understanding its own contexts. But then we also have like, I feel like between the, you know, revolutionary moments, we do get these, the chance to kind of think about the idea of like a radical, like radical historical break, right? Uh, Something that is, you know, particularly in Red Mars that is, uh, you know, living through it, you can't even process it yeah i i became extremely nervous about the idea of advocating violent revolution i concluded many things that um as privileged americans making the guns get exported to the third world where poor and immiserated third world people were going to use those guns and get killed by bigger guns, that this was an untenable position for an American academic. And I wasn't really an academic, because I was a post-academic, and I had an academic background. And I, I saw academia often, uh, you know, oh, we've got to have violent revolution, and they were never in danger, and they never had the need for it. So uh, also modeling revolutions on previous revolutions, like a Moon is a Harsh Mistress, Heinlein, very much the American Revolution all over again. Oh, my gosh, these Americans are so great. Well, you do it on Mars. It was always bullshit. If you, you can pop these domes like a bubble, which they do in the first revolution in Red Mars. So this is the anti-Heinlein revolution, and you can't model a revolution on the ones that went before. And if you think about the French Revolution, you soon have Napoleon. The Russian Revolution, you soon have Stalin. And the American Revolution, well, you have the Constitution, which is kind of an exception, but you also have slavery and uh, as a kind of compromise to get that Constitution. And so 
revolution. I was wanted to write a novel in which there was more than one, and the first one was poorly done and poorly conceived, uh, full, uh, truly deeply felt but poorly conceived. The second one more complicated but more successful. And then also at the very end of the novel, kind of end with a slingshot ending where the, the end of the Blue Mars seems to suggest there's all, something going on, uh, poorly defined, maybe a third revolution. And so this was my pattern for the three volumes. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking when, because we were just talking about that part in Blue Mars and... Um, yet to be released. Yeah, in a yet, in a yet to be released Oh, episode. I'm looking forward to it. Yay. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's not one of our best uh, conversations. It does involve some tears, but uh, but but the, the thing I was thinking about uh, uh, the revol- that last sort of sense of revolution is that I mean, so you know, you could read it as like oh, there's a kind of like. I don't, my feeling is this is not what happens, but you could read it as a kind of like, there's a sort of progressive story, right, from that first revolution, which is disastrous. It is kind of beautiful, but is also the most heartrending of yeah. them, right? And is probably like the most, like, you know, it, then everybody bears that with them as this sort of traumatic, it's the traumatic kernel that they just keep carrying along with them. Yep. And you could read a sort of progress story in which that last one feels like, you know, it's like better because it has this sort of like reformist quality to it, right? They're going to be able to negotiate. They have a political structure in place. Um, but the other thing that happens is everybody's out in the street again you know and you still right. ha- and this is the like i think that's this- a refrain that happens again in yeah, that exactly. section where it's like bodies in the streets that's the only thing that governments uh recognize and that yeah. feels like that's the thing you know that's the thing that's i mean maybe that's like part of the sort of like utopianism of the end is that you know it's still obvious to people that you go out in the street right yes i i'm glad you saw that i and that i really pondered how to end the novel and how to present that third what I call it a slingshot ending because you're tossed off into things you can't be sure of there's a trajectory but you have to imagine what happens after that Uh, um, and that's the slingshot at the moment of maximum acceleration the book ends well for after 1800 pages it's a little radical but I don't believe in endings so or endings always ought to be interesting beyond no no closure no tying up of strings but there were these revolutionary images of people putting flowers into uh, rifle barrels. And there were also a, a touch of post-scarcity. Um, in other words, what are we really fighting over here if we actually have a terraformed Mars that uh, might have a, um, a capacity for a lot of immigration? And you need to be accepting of that to take the demographic pressure off of Earth and to be helpful to the larger politic. The body politic would include the whole solar system at that point. Um, and all these things were, I wanted it to be utopian, and yet there had been so much uh, storm and stress. Um, I mean, how indeed is it utopian just to make another Earth and have the same old uh, messes that we have, and yet life is always going to be messy. So I was caught on that, um, on that teeter-totter. One of the things that makes, maybe in the books, that makes that possible, too, is the longevity treatments. The fact that you have these generations of people who've lived through multiple revolutions already so that they are living history, right? Uh, that they don't have to be told or argued over what what actually happened, what the events were, what they meant or what they meant to do and failed in a certain way. So 
I wonder, you know, because we we talk all the time in the podcast about history and memory and forgetting. And um, so I wonder how much of that has to do with just the power of history, in a sense, to, you know, chart a proper course for the future or something like that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I have, as the books say often, uh, historical analogy is nearly useless. It it deceives you more than it it teaches you. This is what Frank was always saying, and he was just never managing to get that message through. It's not America. It's not 1776. But um, when you were uh, talking about this, it was occurring to me that the revolutions came so fast in the 19th century, thinking that people who were in the French Revolution might have been alive in 1848 for the big one, the, the pan-European blow-up that didn't really go anywhere. But uh, having gone through, if you lived through the period of uh, 1790 to 1850, um, I guess that's kind of a long life. But um, the, the, for me, literarily, I needed time for the terraforming to take effect, but I also wanted to have... Um, multiple revolutions so the longevity helped a lot because I needed that stretch and that and besides which that got interesting in itself this old age stuff of if you live 200 years but you can't remember it is does it have any point or not and so it all got tangled together there's I have to emphasize how much this was a multi-year feeling my way forward, kind of like sentence by sentence or scene by scene. I didn't have a master plan. I was flailing most of the time just to get that day scene written. And it was cumulative, and it developed trajectory. But uh, there wasn't a master plan to begin with, except let's get to a good place. (laughs) That's, uh, I mean, just opens up a side question of I was going to say like you know almost facetiously is Hiroko dead but I suppose like oftentimes maybe in writing you might have been asking yourself that question whenever somebody came up with a myth myth of Hiroko or you know that kind of thing well I think it's appropriate 25 years later to redirect people's attention to that last page of Blue Mars the last two pages of Blue Mars because the answer is there Mm -hmm. so um, uh, and it's a good answer I'll take a look at it when I get home (laughs) yeah yeah, um, and and that makes me happy. I, 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 in fact, I thinking about what I wanted to say to you guys. That it was um, there, the pattern making that I did below the level of reader visibility. In a way, it was uh, stupid, and in a way, it was fun. And I'm hoping that the unconscious mind feels these patterns as a kind of coherence or resonance. Um, in the in the work as a as a lived experience as you read it, uh, and so Hiroko, yeah, there there is an answer to that one in the last couple pages, uh, but also I was using there's this book by Carolyn Spurgeon, a famous book called Shakespeare's Imagery, and it it shows how Shakespeare's image systems are coherent in each play, so that. Um, in, in Macbeth, there's always clothing images, like he's a dwarf in giant's clothing, and there's clothing, clothing, clothing. And it goes on like that through every play. Uh, Carolyn Spurgeon identified the imagery, and I was powerfully impressed by that book. And I thought, that's a beautiful thing that you can do. And did Shakespeare, was he thinking of it, or is it just that he was uh, doing it instinctively or subconsciously? Who knows, because I suspect he was doing it consciously, to tell you the truth, because it, it's so uh, well done, so explicit. So I have patterns, and um, 
the, in Red Mars, there are eight chapters, and um, the first chapter is all water imagery. Frank is underwater, and he's in an aquarium. Uh, the second chapter is Maya. She's in the air. She's floating around. The third chapter is Nadia, and she's on the ground, earth, uh, boom. And then Michelle, the fourth chapter, is on fire. He's in a uh, phoenix. So then I had, so I'd done the four uh, Greek elements, you know, and it was, and it, the metaphors in those four chapters are all coordinated. Well, in six, seven, eight, uh, five, six, seven, eight, I, I combined two each. So the John chapter is maybe air and earth. When he, that from the very beginning, it's all air and earth. And I, to tell you the truth, I can't remember. I'd have to go back and think about it more. Which one of the last ones were? Surely the last one would have been uh, water because of the giant floods with Anne, and maybe fire because things are blowing up on her. I'm not even sure anymore, but these kind of patterns. And then in Green Mars, I wanted to do something simpler, but I couldn't just keep doing that because yeah. it, would, it, it was pointless. So I had the idea that because of the terraforming, that every time people say the sun is like a... I would set up in, in multiple comparisons of the sun to first something inanimate, like the sun is like a ball of gas, that would be like sacks, uh, and then a rock, and then a... a, a, a a bacteria or something, and then a dragon, and then an angel. So there's an evolution. Yeah. There's evolutionary imagery going through Green Mars. And I played games like that that now I forget. Yeah. But it was fun at the time to coordinate it. Well, and the, the, I mean, the other thing that we always talk about is the color imagery, too, and just, like, how complex the color symbology or the, the system there um, really was, and endless debates about what, things mean or whether they mean anything or whether they mean something to the characters that they can't mean to us or yeah. anything yeah. Like that. yeah yeah well the color imagery it made me realize how these color uh, um, images in our minds are, are arbitrary and assigned and and i got a we got a, a wicked example of that in 2000 where it used to be the reds were leftists right, right. you're a red right. and suddenly the new york times puts out a map and stupidly right. puts the red states as the republican states <laughs> and now we've got red states and blue states well yeah. Another example of the dim-wittedness of the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I just, like, I love that, like, um, I mean, the you know, it is part of the pleasure of reading the books is that they are just, they're so full. I mean, they're extremely full, and there is all of this play. But I think something we talked about a bunch that I, I, I was going to ask you when you were talking about the Carolyn Spurgeon book, I mean, is it, is it different to do that kind of symbolic play in science fiction than it is in whatever we describe Shakespeare as being? And partly I think I wanted to ask that because something that struck me, I think not the first time I read the novels, but definitely repeatedly this time was um, like how often there is this like, I think like kind of risky and really amazing move to both give us this like naturalistic description of the natural world and to load that with symbolic mm. resonance, right? Um, in a way that I think, which to me feels like a, that's like a very science fictional thing to me. Sure, right? yeah, it is. It, it, and it's also the pathetic fallacy and a and kind of a Victorian fallacy. thing, yes, you know, exactly. the fog of the bleak house, yeah. the fog of the legal world of the Jarndyce. I decided to go full in with that. And there's a kind of pre-modernist quality to the Mars yeah. books of let's get Victorian. Pathetic fallacy, let's run with it. Because yeah. uh, it's kind of, uh, it's an emotional, why 
not. Yeah. Why be fastidious or finicky about effects? This, this um, um, reaction against the Victorians by the modernists, okay, well, we're past that. And in the postmodern period, you can be anything you want, including doing Trollope over again or, or Tolstoy, whoever you want to model out of the pre-modern period, because this is a historical novel, and you need the vast uh, reach of the historical novel and all of the tricks that, that uh, literature could bring to bear. I just decided to throw out all rules, all sense of norms, uh, and do whatever seemed right to make it charged and I had a lot of time to think. I wasn't doing anything else except for bringing up a little kid. And um, I needed it to get the effects that I want. And rereading it, because, see, I reread um, Red Mars on a relatively regular basis because there was always talk of it being turned into a TV show. And I read it like, what were they going to do to it? Well, they're going to actually screw it up totally. You wouldn't believe some of these pilots. But I read it and I thought, wow. This Red Mars is pretty good. It's way better than um, most of the stuff I write. Where did this come from? And I was scared to read Green and Blue Mars because I had the impression that they were um, more diffuse or that they had they lacked some quality that Red Mars had that they didn't, which may be true, but maybe not. Anyway, I never reread Green and Blue Mars until just this last year when you started doing the podcast. So I'm reading these books, and they are very strange books. Yeah. Uh, and I thought to myself, there's a methodology I was using there where I needed to summarize a lot of the time. So this is not dramatized scenes, but summarization where, well, for 10 years, you know, Nadia went down to the mines every day and she built this, and they managed to, well, this is all summarization, and it's Garcia Marquez teaches you that you can do this, uh, and he made me bold, because uh, 100 Years of Solitude was the greatest novel of the 20th century, and, and he was summarizing that entire book. So I was st uh, using his method, which nobody can imitate him, I'm not saying that, but by summarizing, what moments do you then unpack to make a dramatized scene where you're really there in the way that readers normally expect in a novel? And, and so I was treating time, narrative time, like an accordion, and a lot of summarization, and then suddenly open it up and we have a dramatized scene and then back to summarization and then open it up in a rhythm that now strikes me as just uh, very right, inspired back and forth, the right moments are dramatized, the right moments are summarized so you don't get bogged down into a 10,000 page novel, you know, because Robert O. Jordan wrote a 10,000 page novel and I, I don't know, I can't, couldn't stand to read it, but um, you could imagine if I dramatized every scene that it would have gone on forever but it didn't, and, it, and so green and blue struck me as nicely compact and pretty much in the same realm. They, they, I think red, green, and blue are all the same novel, and they feel the same all the way across to me, which was, a, that's a new finding for me. Well, that accordioning is particularly appropriate when we're dealing with people who can live a thousand years. Yeah. You know, mm. there are years, <laughs> when you're living for 250 years, there's going to be years and years where it just sort of yeah. float around, like yeah. the gall just kind of floats yeah. around for a while. And this um, thing in Proust, that, uh, that's in yeah. Proust, and, and Beckett points it out, of your habits. You live a set of habits, and the, that's when you summarize, because it's the... Um, um, the uh, pseudo-iterative is what Gerard Jeanette called it, out of Beckett, out of Proust, the pseudo-iterative where you give an example of a, uh, a precise day that is nevertheless representative of 10 years, and that's a beautiful mode, and I guess there's a tense in French that um, facilitates it. Um, so this was also hugely uh, helpful. Was I mean, and that's also, I mean, that's so much about, like, the way in which... Uh, uh, 
the way in which the novels deal with history too, right? Because like, you know, what stands out as an event and some of the things that are, some of the things that stand out as events actually are really not important. You know, they are these like, it's like a caper or something adventurous happens. And then some of them are monumental and weighty. And I think, uh, but you always have the sense of, it's like, in the narrative, you always have the sense of daily life going yeah, on. Yeah, thank you. Just like... Very important. You have these moments. I mean, I, to me, like, the most... Maybe the most moving moments in the novels are where you... Uh, you, the reader, have your perspective reframed, right? You think you know... You think you know all of the first hundred, but you only actually know, like, six of them, as Matt <laughs> and I kept noting over yeah, and over again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> then you think you know what's happening on Mars, and then suddenly you realize that they're just people who are living these extraordinary, complex lives, and you haven't even seen them, and you're just getting this glimpse of them now. And uh, those things together, which are, you know, part of this kind of realist project, too, right, where the you see a piece of the world, but there's always more... I'm glad you noticed that. I must have been thinking along those lines when I wrote it because it couldn't have been an accident of uh, trying to show that beyond the edges of this story are, are other stories that are uh, woven together with it. And, and in fact, if it was Matt, you're talking about who is this Oscar Schnelling guy? And I'm going, who, what's Oscar Schnelling? I never even heard of this guy. And, and so I had to, when I was rereading Green Mars, I realized that I had put in a strand of a complete yeah. political a leader and a yeah. complete thing that is referred to but never explained whatsoever, it's so which great. is hilarious. Yeah. Uh, it's a good idea. And I pursued it around there. And also Phyllis, uh, her followers. If you go on to read The Martians, what you'll see is that that book is almost a compendium of, of following out these threads that were never in the story proper and, and then recomplicating the story. One thing I can point out that might be of interest is that um, in The Martians, there's a fairly uh, a novelette or a novella that describes the relationship between Maya and Coyote, an incredibly intense, long-lived, sometimes sexual relationship that is not in the trilogy whatsoever. So I managed to add to that game. But in the meantime, it was part of the realist project. of Like, this is, I'm telling one story, but it's in a world where all these other stories are going on. That was definitely a lot of fun. It's I mean, now the workshop language is always degrading and, and, um, and um, hopeful that they understand how stories work. So they're always claiming more than they um, really can justify. So I hate the workshop language. You know, info dumps. I'm the great info dumper. I dump on your carpet. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but Easter eggs, you know, this notion that they're Easter eggs. Oh, yeah. Please, give yeah. me a break. There's, yeah, it's childish. Uh, it's a silly name for a, something that can be quite... Uh, more complicatedly fun than yeah. than that. Um, I wonder, just going back to the um, uh, thing about sort of like 100 years of solitude, but it kind of related to what did you learn b about your by writing your first novels that then you abandoned or or took into these novels that made. You know, did you read 100 Years of Solitude in between that time? Had you, were you no. aware of it when you read Icehenge? Because I've read, yeah. at this point, I've read Icehenge and Escape from Kathmandu, the Mars Trilogy, and then the, your most recent two books. So I'm really yeah. interested in, like, kind of the scope of your yeah. development. Well, thank you for that. I, I feel like Red Mars was a complete break. And I was a child of the workshop system, both as an undergraduate, lucky, my advisor, Donald Wesling, said, just write fiction and I'll give you credit for it as an independent study. And um, he, my first poetry workshop, when the workshop method 
uh, I was introduced to at UCSD as an undergraduate, and that got me started. And then I went to Clarion, and then I went to Damon and Kate's house for their monthly workshops up in Eugene, Oregon, uh, a long schlep from Davis, California. But I did it because I loved those people, and I wanted to be in contact as a young writer. But the thing is, the workshop method uses that workshop uh, pseudo-technical language uh, as if a story was a machine that you could break down and discuss in terms of style and theme and character and symbolism and plot and blah, blah. I no longer believe any of that. We don't read like that, and texts don't write like that. And, and 100 Years of Solitude, which I read like in 75, before all the rest of it. So even going to Clarion, I was skeptical. Like, don't believe any of this, just love the people. And uh, it's my friend Karen Fowler who said to me once, uh, workshopping, the value is not in what um, people tell you about your stories. The value is in you figuring out what you can say to someone else uh, about their story yes. that yeah. might be useful. Yes. Yeah. So it's a critical method. Right. So, but uh, my first novels, uh, they're ordinary, they are uh, dramatized scenes. Mm-hmm. Wild Shore, horrifically, I did not understand uh, that narrative pace should change over the course of a novel and, and not remain m- uh, metronomic at the same speed. <laughs> right. Uh, so I can't even read that book. Um, and uh, by the time of the Gold Coast, I feel like I have uh, got the novel under under. That's my first novel that I would point to. I like Isinge. It's a great uh, trio of novellas, especially the middle novella, Jalmar Naderland. That was a moment for me. Uh, But those are first-person narratives like out of Joyce Carey. But the Gold Coast is a thing where I I still think this is a well-constructed novel. I've got my chops together. And then I try to do Utopia and Pacific Edge. Well, it's very unsatisfactory to me. And um, when I was done, I thought, damn... Um, I need something more. Um, and that was when I thought, no more rules, no more... Uh, if I need to do exposition, if I need to clunk along like a 19th century novel, that's what I need for this Mars project. And I had been thinking about the Mars project for um, a- about 10 years. In the late 70s, I thought, we should do a terraforming Mars novel. How do you do that? I have no idea. And so in, over the 80s, I was collecting books, I was collecting ideas, I was getting myself ready... Um, I, I, uh, we had, at least, and I had David, our first kid, and I wrote a short, sharp shock to kind of discharge all craziness, wildness, symbolism, irrationality, a dream narrative, and I'm very pleased with that as such. But then I, the decks were cleared, and when I started Red Mars, I had the notion of a radical break with any of the so-called rules, no more workshop, um, and that was a uh, really important. And I, I mean, I. I was, it, it was maybe two and a half years of writing Red Mars. Felt lost most of the time. Like, is this really working? I mean, this is just, um, this is just exposition. This is just summarization. But it seemed to be working anyway. It, the book at that point was telling me this is what I need. Yeah. Um, oh, man, I have like four questions now. But uh, are. Are there science fiction novels that you see the Mars trilogy in close conversation with? I mean, I'm thinking about you breaking the rules, but are are there like... Uh... Oh, well, um, always giving me courage was Stapleton. Olaf Stapleton, yeah, yeah. Last yeah. and First Men in Star Maker. You know, if you've got a book like that out there, it's it yeah. doubles down on 100 Years of Solitude. It's like <laughs> 2 billion years of solitude. Uh, at each, parag- each page, I once calculated, covers 500 million years. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I played a game with that in a lecture I, I, uh, that is on the, on the Internet somewhere, uh, comparing the slowest pace to the fastest pace. Uh, 
Uh, and so uh, Stapleton and then um, the new wave. I wanted to um, do something that people that people could love as much as I love the new wave novels. So um, in thinking about it in that sense, very much the dispossessed and yeah, the female yeah. man. I wanted, uh, I made a deliberate project that I was going to have, um, this novel was going to have half women uh, point of view characters in each chapter and half men. And I actually miscalculated and there's one more, or it must, yeah, since there's an even number, it must be two more men chapters and women chapters. But that was simply an arithmetical error. Uh, <laughs> so Le Guin and Russ were super important yeah. to me. Uh, and really the whole of the science fiction tradition, except for not the Golden Wave. I don't like Heinlein. I just simply don't. I like Asimov as a person and as a political figure and as a uh, super intelligent liberal man. Um, very fond of Asimov, but not his fiction. And so you have to get to Sturgeon, Bester. You have to get to the 50s. Uh, and Damon himself, my great teacher, Damon Knight, and then the 60s were where I was just living in heaven as a as a young reader of science fiction. Between 65 and 75, you, you couldn't even believe it. Every year there'd be 10 masterpieces that were weirder than the year before. And so I knew I couldn't do that. That moment was over, and also it's not, my, it's not in my skill set to be... Um, pyrotechnically, stylistically mind-boggling. And it's not in Le Guin's set either. That's why Russ made her so nervous. And not just the uh, feminist politics and being a housewife when Russ was, um, you know, some kind of radical. It was also stylistic that nobody could match Russ for brilliance. And here was Le Guin's in a kind of a, a unspoken psychic contest um, uh, for the greatest woman writer in science fiction of that moment. Um, and so I'd say Le Guin, yeah, very important. And uh, really, you can see that it was a, a communal thing, really. So it wasn't any individual text or writer, but a sense that I was in a community, and I had been given an opportunity. Nobody knew anything about Mars until um, 1980 or so, and then suddenly the whole damn planet was dropped on us. So I had an opportunity, and I was fixated. Yeah, I mean, I, I do, like, I think that uh, you see the dispossessed all over the Mars books in, I, in ways that I think are just like, it's partly really interesting because it's such a different book than The Dispossessed, but the way that, you know, uh, like where its utopianism is, um, uh, and, and also a little bit what we were talking about before, I think that interest in like what you do with, with symbols, right, and, and when like you're sort of... Uh, uh, symbols become concretized and symbolic at the same time, right? That sort of, which that feels very Le Guin mm-hmm. to me yeah. too. You know, somebody not afraid of like, you know, giving you this kind of like something that in a poem would be like a image, right? Yeah. But here yeah. is like something that someone is actually doing or living, right? You know. Yeah, it's um, she. Uh, I stayed up all night to read The Dispossessed because I was just too excited as I got into the middle of it. And, uh, you know, dawn came, I finished this book, and I thought, that is a utopia. That is a novel. And in terms of the utopian novel, and it's successful on both levels, uh, when had that happened before? You have uh, Island by Huxley. You have... um, Seven Days in New Crete by Robert Graves. You have uh, Morris and, and, and Wells. Well, these are not very good novels. And so Le Guin had done a new thing in the world. And I was thinking to myself, 
ah, it can be done. And really, this is back in 75 also. Yeah, so right, took, right. All these things have delayed effects as I tried to pull together my own projects. Um, the years pass. It's a, it's a slow process. Um, but I, I, that book did make a huge difference. Um, Did you have a question? Because I have another question. Go for it. I had one. I I mean, this is sort of tied to that. I was just thinking on the um, train on the way here uh, about how when Aurora came out, some of the reviews of Aurora said, and I think this was in the New York Times review, although I may be mixing it up with something else, they said basically like... um, so what's amazing about this book is Kim Stanley Robinson, great utopian science fiction writer, gives us like the anti-utopian novel or something like that, right? So that Aurora was supposed to be, and I, I say this without wanting to spoil anything about Aurora because I need to make Matt read it. Um, but, uh, you know, so Aurora was supposed to be like somehow a revision of like that utopian trajectory in the Mars novels. Um this isn't like a reading that I feel sympathetic to, but I'm kind of, I, I would be interested to hear you say a little bit about the place of the utopianism, of, of utopianism for you, because that seems like that's something that is ongoing and what you do. It's always there as some kind of presence in your novels. Yeah, it, it, in most of them, it's there. It's a, it's a deliberate project. Um, it's a kind of stubbornness or a, a feeling that the, that, idea of utopia is never done and never uh, you can never exhaust it and there and also it's an empty niche in the ecology of our uh, of literature there's not many people trying it there's obvious problems you're uh, oh a utopia is going to be boring there's all kinds of political attacks disguised as literary attacks against the idea of utopia and so it's a it's a certain kind of stubbornness and a certain kind of pleasure in being contrary and in doing something that i feel is useful and fun and um problematic but interesting so i keep coming back to it and sometimes it's it's bizarre how it will come back <clears throat> like i thought with the years of rice and salt okay good i'm no longer doing a utopian novel but um if you have an alternative history where there are no europeans that's utopia. Yeah, but no. How how racist of you to say that. (laughs) The idea that the Europeans are gone would make the world better. No, you can't say that. But on the other hand, if you say with the Europeans gone, the world just is down the toilet, that's even worse. And yet, if it's exactly the same, why did you do that book in the first place? So the world couldn't be better. It couldn't be worse. It couldn't be equal. What am I going to do? Different, yeah. Utopia. Yeah. It had to be a shoot off into the future yeah. uh, beyond our time. And so the utopia was the solution to the dilemma of years of rice and salt. And so it keeps on coming back for me, and I keep on plugging away at it. Uh, the Green Earth, uh, the Science in the Capital trilogy, that has a utopian element. And in Aurora, what I, the thing about Aurora is we can't get to the stars. And science fiction is always pretending that we can. Right. And the space cadets in our culture are very often saying, oh, humanity's destiny is the stars. Yeah. And if we don't get to the stars, we're a failure as a species. Well, this is just a nonsense. Yeah. And it, it's been proven nonsense over the period of, of discussion from Tsiolkovsky in the 20s 
till now, the nonsense of it has been demonstrably proved, but never taken up by science fiction. Is that a fantasy or a delusion of modernity, or is it something? You know, is that something that's specific to the kind of modern era where, like, a kind of European sensibility has conquered the globe, and now it's like, what else is there to conquer? Oh, I'll go that. I I'll can't. I can't speak. be sure. I've thought. Of, I've wondered about that myself. I wonder if the ancient Greeks thought uh, some this cosmism is a little bit Russian. It's a little bit futurism. Yeah. Um, I think it might be a replacement for religions where you thought you were going to be immortal. So right. it's a secular religion. This is my ultimate thought is that this notion that we're going to the stars is, okay, if I can't live forever, my DNA can yes, live forever right, and we'll right. conquer this galaxy. Humanity and a, has to live, yeah. Yeah, and humanity is more important than, like, the bacteria, really? Yeah. Uh, I, I, why is that true? Well, nobody can answer that. But the space cadets insist on this, and science fiction has a great story space there. you got the Galactic Empire, you got Star Trek, you got right. Star Wars. It's a... It's a fantasy space, mm-hmm. just like Middle Earth, mm-hmm. where good stories can be told. Uh, and indeed, I'm, I've been uh, talking about Gene Wolfe's The Book of the Long Sun, and yeah. Gene Wolfe recently departed yeah, Chicago yeah. Guy. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, he wrote The Book of the Long Sun, which is a starship novel. It's one of my favorite novels, and I still don't believe that starships work. So um, uh, Aurora was just to, to put a new uh, spoke in the wheel. Uh, and maybe across the wheel, you know, a monkey wrench kind of a thing, saying, wait a second, this idea doesn't work, and a lot of people got furious. The people who believed that religion, I was a, literally an iconoclast. I broke the icon, and they didn't like that. And there were some wickedly uh, angry reviews of Aurora, but since that was what I was trying for, yeah. you know, I couldn't really <laughs> complain. But it, it also, I mean, like, Aurora feels like it... it it actually shares some of the... Actually, it shares some of the utopianism of the Mars books, in part because it is... You know, it is deeply about people figuring out how to solve problems that, you know, that veer toward the unsolvable, right? The hard, the hard problem, right? Yeah. And the hard problem is met by uh, human beings committing themselves to possibility. And that, and, and that seems to me like a lot of the, like, utopianism in the Mars books is about that, right? About just the yeah. idea that that remains open to people, that they can work together... <coughs> Um, that they will work together, that conflict is not about impossibility, but actually about, you know, making something. Right? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I thoroughly believe that we are social primates. It's a miracle we get along as well as we do, that there's as much altruism and cooperation as there is competition and fighting. It's obvious. Uh, there wouldn't be, a, you know, seven and a half billion of us on this planet if we weren't highly com- cooperative as uh, social primates. And then in Aurora, for me especially, at the very end, have, essentially it's a prison novel, intensely depressing. When they get back to Earth, of course they're overwhelmed. They're blown away. And, and as individuals, it's like too much. But as a, uh, it also gets them back to the beach. Yes. And yeah. so speaking of symbolism, yeah. you know, she comes back out of the surf and kisses the sand. I was scared to death when that movie with Sandra Bullock and she oh. lands in the yeah. lake. I had already written Aurora. She, I said, she better not kiss the sand or I'm just going to kill her. Uh, and she didn't. But um, to be rebuilding a beach after you flooded the world, uh, it said, okay, terraforming, you know, we have to terraform Earth. We screwed up. We've been screwing up for hundreds of years. But you can still build a beach or you can still engineer. And maybe this isn't true. Ecologically engineering might be another fantasy, but it seems a little more realistic to me. We've been interfering with the landscape for um, our entire existence. 
And they say now that South America was this giant park when the Europeans arrived, that everything had been landscaped uh, to an uncanny degree. So um, that I find utopian. Yeah. Yeah. Because oh. I have a question. Well, I just, um, in terms of, we were talking somewhat about like some literary references, but these the, this line of questioning gets me to ask you kind of, you know, there's so much in, in your novels that's not science, that's metaphysics and philosophy and political economy, especially. And I just want to know who you read, who you keep up with, um, where do you look for to stay sort of on the cutting edge or um, engaged in that Realm obviously, there's a lot of Althusser, especially in the the Mars books. But in uh, New York 2140, there's the quote from Maurizio Lazzarato in one of the epigrams. The one of his either is governing by dead or the self or the, yeah, the dead by dead or whatever. Yeah, which I love that book too. Um, so I'm wondering just who you sort of read or, <clears throat> or follow. Well, I mean, in terms of individuals, I read Jameson. Uh, Fred Jameson was my teacher at UC San Diego. He's my advisor. He's the one that told me to read Philip K. Dick, and I've been in contact with him ever since. And he is an incredible guide to the rest of the world of discourse and of theory. So uh, it's through Jameson that I came to Althusser. And Raymond Williams, very important for me, Ernest Bloch, uh, uh, these are the useful ones. And Gerard Jeanette, the whole structuralist uh, wing, yeah. as a working novelist, yeah, uh, yeah. these are a little more obscure because their um, structuralism is more technical. But in, um, And then in terms, I read the London Review of Books. And this is highly, it's the best journal by far, as far as I can tell, on the planet today. Every two weeks it is uh, education. And they are the ones who tip me off by way of reviews to... Um, and the New Left Review also, uh, Wolfgang Streak, and then Joseph Vogel, and Lazzarato came from a friend of mine at UC Davis. Um, Mario Biagioli is a Galileo expert who I got to know when I was doing my Galileo book, but he's really good on everything as a science studies person. And then there are other people at UC Davis who are friends of mine who say, you need to read this, you need to read that. And so they regard me as an outlier or a person in town of interest that could be fed <laughs> good stuff. And so I love these people. Yeah. They've been tremendous for me. And I'm still listening to Jameson now. I've got the keys to the kingdom in that he's, his lectures down at Duke are uh, available to students afterwards. They're recorded oh. as students miss the lecture. Uh-huh. And so he taught Years of Rice and Salt a couple of years ago oh, in a cool. Theories of History class. And ever since then, I've had the right to listen to his lectures. So along with listening to you guys, uh, I'm listening to Fred Jameson. And that pretty much fills out my podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that seems about right. That seems about right. <laughs> You and Fred. Uh, uh, that's yeah. That's so awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I just I wanted to ask because I don't know how much time we have yeah, left. Two forty-five. Okay. So he has questions for us too. Yeah. I mean, right. go, no, go long. Don't, let's not worry about time. <laughs> well, I. You can edit down. I wanted to ask about. Um, about Anne because I oh, feel good. like. Um, oh yeah, let's talk about character. So yeah. Uh, the. The people who stuck with me. So I was, I was actually just thinking back to you, saying like, uh, even even out the number of like uh, man chapters and woman chapters. Yep. Um, and the you know the characters who stuck with me from the first reading were Nadia and Maya, and in, in some ways like they remain a kind of like um, centrally dear to my heart in thinking about those books. Um, and I was really happy to read them again and still like 
them, you yeah. know, because mm-hmm. I was the first time I read the novels, I was so just totally absorbed in them that I wasn't sure whether, you know, like anyway. So that was nice. But I feel like in our discussions and in this reading, like um, uh, we've spent so much time talking about Anne um, and I think the first time I read her much more as this kind of like, or so she's, you know, a quasi symbolic figure who gives us that sort of that purest position, hard as the rocks that she loves. Yeah. She can't bend. Um, and I sort of, you know, that was kind of how I read her function. And, you know, that is clearly part of her function. Um, but this time through, partly because of other stuff that I've, I've been reading but a lot because of the conversations that we've had I'm I feel really fascinated by Anne and that uh, the idea of what it is to be a person who you know aside from whatever the like you know psychoanalytic story of her is a person who does love the inanimate um, who has a sort of like conception of what nature is that doesn't inc- that doesn't sort of default to a to prioritizing livingness, but instead sees something else. Yeah, I just it, yeah, and then I would totally forgotten that you know Blue Mars also ends with her on a beach, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, and that uh, yeah, and that yeah. So I'm just I'm curious about I'm curious about Anne. Well, I'm th- thank you, and I think I want to thank you actually for kind of resuscitating Anne in my own um, uh, pain of attention to the books. Um, I, I think I thought of her, uh, in retrospect, as more one-dimensional than she really is. I had forgotten, and your discussions of her, I would actually go back and reread, like, wait, uh, is that there in the books? And then I would find, the, yes, it is there in the books. <laughs> so your discussion of, these were great uh, discussions. The, your discussions of the end chapters were boggling my mind. And, and I didn't realize how many times she almost died. Yeah. And how many times... Yeah. And you were cracking me up. The, the transgressiveness. If somebody wants to die, oh no, we're not going to let you die. We're just going <laughs> to redo your, uh, your DNA entirely to make you live. I mean, this is really an imposition. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sax is just so crazy. And I didn't, I didn't even... Because I was just l- trying to write the sentences... I, without a plan, I, 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 these things were unfolding for me as much as for anyone, but you, you drew my attention back to her. And then the chapter with Zoe, where she, you're seeing Anne from the outside, is yeah. kind of hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. How she's, she's more Zoe than Zoe in terms of alienation yeah. or uh, ability to be hard, uh, and they're a funny pair together. So, uh, Anne, the great refusal... And then this psychoanalytical thing, that's only two sentences, and they both come from Michelle. And I once read an online thing where somebody was saying, this Michelle, how unprofessional. I mean, Anna's like a patient of hers. Why is he telling somebody else about her problems? And I'm thinking, when was Michelle ever professional? Like from word one, Michelle has been the craziest person in the book. And so I thought this person had not got Michelle's. And But also, at that, that point, it's 100 years later, they're all family. Why wouldn't Michelle tell Sack something about Anne to mutually, like talking about your sisters yeah, or your yeah, brothers? Yeah. It was a ridiculous comment, but and it made me laugh. But there is something going on with her that orients everything and she ends also the first book with the the flood destroying her Mars very much of a low point where she just goes off to kill herself and her husband uh, Simon or Peter Simon just grabs grabs her and and well it was it it was extremely intense yeah 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 I mean for me she you know it's this opportunity she gives you an opportunity to think about um, 
you know, not only that the sort of debate about terraforming um, is going to be really is hard, right? <laughs> and that, yeah, yeah. Um, but but also that um, partly what's so hard about thinking about these problems or knowing how to address them or what to do, right? Just to think about our you know our current situation um, is that these are also problems that are about attachment and the inability to be attached to certain things, right? I mean, so it, it does seem like, a, you know, something that we, you know, that I, I think the Mars books give you in a really deep and intense way is they ask you to think about what does it mean to feel that you're part of a planet, that you belong on a planet, yeah. that that's, yeah, yeah, that, sure. you know, and, and in particular, a planet that is not the one where, like, the pull of gravity is there, like, right down in your cells or whatever, right? And Anne, you know, the, the thing that Anne is drawn to is it is sort of like the nature in its most impersonal form, you know? Right, the, the rocks. The rocks. Yeah. And that, I think, is... Uh, I think that that's actually quite amazing, and that opens up something that, like, is, is really, to me, like if there's a kind of ANSAX dialectic, that aspect is outside of it, right? And it complicates it. I think so. I, and when I was writing these books, the environmental ethics was a thing. And I don't, I, it, it had a little flurry of, of books and of interest and of conferences. And they, environmental ethicists would talk about intrinsic worth versus or intrinsic value versus utilitarian worth like is the earth valuable because it serves human beings or does it have an intrinsic value and this was a big question for environmental ethicists <clears throat> it's a little bit um too fine for me but it, there was something in it and uh, and certainly it informed my uh, notion that for Anne, Mars as it was when they arrived had an intrinsic value that shouldn't be messed with. And I often, there was a science fiction writer saying, well, the American West, we could just forest the whole thing, you know, and draw down carbon. I was thinking, but what if you like deserts? And so it all came out of that. It's kind of horrible to think of, of uh, Utah or of, uh, or of the high deserts yeah. being uh, just turned into forest for human use. Right. So she was perfect for that position, and I needed her. And so she began as a... There, I had a use value myself in that I needed someone to be the red. And the way she proliferated out of that, and when I, what you did is make me pay attention to her again as a person, not just a position that I needed in the text. I mean, she has a child uh, that she's very close to and has a complicated relationship with. She, uh, Simon uh, falls in love with her. John is very attracted to her and, and in, interested in her. Um, and, and, he, and Frank as well, but also then later, um, Sachs, of course. And so this is a lot of people that are seeing her as a charismatic figure, as, a, as an individual, and they find this, uh, this redness of hers uh, puzzling. And the psychological thing that Michelle brings up is utterly irrelevant. She could have had a perfectly different childhood. She still would have been the same. I feel, and this is like theories of personality, I suppose, at this point, but I very strongly feel that you pretty much are what you are when your brain comes together. Uh, nature over nurture, I believe. And Anne is just, um, m what I like about the way you guys have been talking about the books is it's been very character-centric, and it's been tremendously fun for me to feel that these characters are more than just positions in a text that I needed, but uh, have a certain liveliness of their own. None of them are like me, personally. 
And I, I mean, I know the sax person quite, quite well. But um, for the rest of it, they're just coming out of nowhere. They're coming out of Mars and out of the necessities of the text. It's been a real, I mean, reading it, because I read it for the first time, what, a year and a half ago or something, and then approached Hillary with the idea for the podcast. So I've read it all twice. And then reading it again and in the discussions, that is something that's really come out is the characters, the interestingness of the characters. And something that also I find, you know, I'm glad we're talking about it because in all of, you know, anytime you're interviewed or you're doing a, a, a talk, you're talking about the science and you're talking about, yeah. so, you know, like what, what, we, what, we, what can we do? How can we solve global warming? These, and like, you know, these are amazing literary characters and like literary cre- creation. So um, I'm glad that we're, we're talking I, about I appreciate this. it so much. And, uh, I, and also, I am tired of that science stuff. Like, oh, Stan, <laughs> you must want to terraform Mars. Or what do you think about the, you know, there's news from Mars. There isn't enough, um, yeah. there isn't enough water. There isn't enough nitrogen. Who cares? <laughs> it's a novel, baby. It's a novel. Uh, and, and nobody would ask, you know, another novelist, like, your setting is being flooded or they're, yeah. they they tore down the part of the city that your novel was what do you think right. about that yeah. like what I wrote a novel yeah. it's over yeah. Um, yeah well unless you were like an American regional novelist so you're like the regional novelist of, of Mars right I am, That's right. I, am. I am a regionalist and That's that right. that of course is always a d- diminishment it's, it's yeah. bad enough being a science fiction writer um, and that's my <laughs> that's my small town you know it's a one can transcend one's town but I like my town and so it's very important not to um get caught up in that in that game so is it do you think it's right to think of the first hundred as a are they a family what is it what is it how do you describe them i was thinking about them as like they're the little band right they're the people who are so intimate with each other so bound up with each other yet they don't even necessarily know each other all that well i just like i can we think about them as like figuring something that is like solidarity or affinity or I don't know I want it I want like a name for yeah that well formation. I often have been thinking about this more retroactively than uh, whilst I was working on it but uh, because it came up because of shaman so okay we evolved maybe about a uh, hundred thousand years or so or maybe even way longer than that half a million years or so we're we're in little bands like you say, a little band, and this is kind of Proust, where you know, there, say there's a hundred people uh, like in your entire lived experience, and then you're close with about five of them, you know pretty well about 20 of them, you facially recognize and have an impression of the whole crowd. So that was, and and um, it came to me when I was writing Shaman about a, literally a Paleolithic group that the the first hundred are essentially like that. Yeah. yeah. And you have your intense <laughs> loves, you have your intense dislikes, but you, it's very hard to stay enemies with um, someone that you're living with every day because you have to negotiate with them. You have to acknowledge that in some contexts other people like them, the people that you like like them, even though you don't like them. And it gets all complicated at that level. And so that's what they are. Maybe a village, uh, because once you set people settle down, the villages would be quite small. Yeah. Um, but maybe a tribe or or a band. In the in shaman, I called it a pack, so that you got the um, kind of wolfish um, right. or, or canine element of it. Right. Um, words had to be chosen very carefully in in shaman. And I know this was a book that was not one of your favorites, uh, but um, but I actually quite love shaman, and it's a it's an important book for me. It underlies 
all the other books in in um, more than um, theoretical ways. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I love parts of it. To yeah. be fair. Ah, well, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true of all books. It's a uh, once you decide to give up on um, uh, if you try to give up on modern sensibilities, like what was it really like back then, and take away your own uh, morality, you might say, and try to imagine what their morality was like. Well, it's a frightening experience, and I often was just typing with my eyes closed, thinking, am I really saying this? And, you know, thank God my mom has passed away, and uh, (laughs) it was was a deep dive. I have a question. Oh, yeah. We're, you and I are both from Orange County. Yeah. Uh, but from very different moments in uh, h- historical time in Orange County. But his, Orange County is pretty they much. Have historical t- I didn't think they had Oh, yeah. They kind of, oh, heck yeah. They, they try to hide it, though, right? They try to pretend that it doesn't exist, even though it's happening all around you all the time. And it's, as we've talked about it, where it's more and more depressing every time you go, I go back. It's because it's changing all the time and f- mostly for the worse. But, Mike. I think that uh, I, I find myself really it's it's always surprising when I tell someone that I'm from California first of all they never guess that I'm from California yeah. they never guess that I'm from Orange County that's always a surprise because I'm just sort of uh, grumpy and uh, dark they think I'm from Boston or New York or something yeah like yeah yeah New York yeah it's perfect and um, so I'm just kind of wondering how I you know I, I'm perplexed as to how I got out of there uh, with my political sensibilities but I, I imagine that growing up when you grew up as a kind of a hippie was probably a little bit easier to be oh, no. left wing. No, or no, no, was it was no. it weird? Were you? Let really me weird? explain my timeline please, there please because do. I was not a hippie at all in Orange County. Okay. Um, and remind me which town? Where? Or Garden Grove? Yeah. Okay. So I was in Orange, or really yeah. El, El Medina, We're right next to Justin, door. right next in the middle of the county, middle yeah. of the middle. Of, and also, you wouldn't if you walked the streets between my town and your town, you never would have left no. Orange County. No, you never. There's leave. no. There's no border. There's mean, no except border. for the signs on some of those large streets. You, you are now entering Garden Grove. I drive people around there. I'm like, we're now in a different city. They're like, <laughs> why? Why? <laughs> what does that mean? Because the board of supervisors was a. Well, it has its own history. It's all real estate scam. Yeah, it is. So I grew up there. However, in the um, uh, the end of the fifties and the early and and through the sixties, and I left for school in nineteen seventy. So really, the sixties, and they were tearing out the orange groves at a rate of five acres a day every day for those whole ten years. Wow, that was a mind-boggling. In the back of the, I didn't really care. It yeah. wasn't like I was going, "Oh my God!" It's just something. It's just that was something was always happening. There was this transformation, which turned me into a science fiction writer. Mm. But I tell a story that I think is quite true, uh, very true psychologically. Is that I drove from 1955 to 1970 in a 90-minute drive from Orange County to UC San Diego. Yeah. Got in my little white cortina with my tiny little band of possessions, went down with a few close friends yeah. from, from uh, El Medina High School. We went to UCSD together to go yeah. to the beach. Got to UCSD, and um, they had just bombed Cambodia. I, I mean, UCSD was uh, Angela Davis and Marcuse, yeah. and uh, Jameson yeah. was there, although I didn't know it yet. UCSD was like any other campus in the Vietnam War. Yeah. Uh, and yet I had come... The whole 60s had might as well, at, at, at El Medina High School, might as well have been 1955, right. Ozzie and Harriet, right. um, happy days. And 
uh, we knew the world was happening because Life magazine would show, come in the mail and show pictures of all the dead uh, faces of people just a little older than us from Vietnam. But it was all at a remove. It was all mediated by media. Nothing changed in our high school. Yeah. And it could have been 54 when I graduated. So this was an, uh, uh, another science fiction experience. The girls being turned down and one day driving across a decade in an hour. Yeah. Uh, and coming out on the other side and I just loved UCSD. And so my sense of renunciation of Orange County was retroactive. And I always loved the beach. The beach was my refuge. Went down to Newport Beach and to um, San Clemente, but mostly Newport Beach, either 15th Street or 44th Street. And we would body surf, and we'd spend all day down there. And I, I would always bring a book. I'd be reading it while thawing out uh, uh, after an hour in the water, come out blue, shiver, read a paperback for an hour, and then go back in the water. And... Um, that was my Orange County life. Yeah, I, I would say that like, it's a bubble of depoliticization for me growing up there. Like I, I right, because you were there. Which decade? The eighties, right? And 90s. So this is these are profoundly 90s. different. Yeah, but but at, but at the same time, like I, you know, there was. I, I wasn't political. I mean, in America, I think it's yeah. probably a, a, an American thing. I, I do attribute it to kind of Southern California, specifically in the suburbs, where it's just this depoliticized bubble sure. where everything's yeah. just kind of a matter of fact. My big awakening was because I went to Irvine for undergrad. Ah. So there was kind oh of a... God, you, you know, didn't get out. A little bit different. Yeah, I didn't get... Yeah, mama's boy. Uh, I didn't get out. Uh, it was a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of awakening there. But I went to NYU... <laughs> for my uh, <laughs> master's degree. So no, that's that just like... Have, that must have that been a mind-boggler. Like landing on Mars. I yeah, mean, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or like really like living in Europe or something. Well, uh, what's... Um, no car anymore. Asimov's you know? uh, Trantor. Trantor is New York. Mm. Uh, and so you're in the World City at yeah. that point from Orange County. What a... Yeah. That must have been fun. <laughs> it was a black... Well, the first three months I was miserable, but then I learned yeah. and, you know, totally fell in love with it. Yeah. yeah. I went from Southern California to Boston, to Boston, and actually I was miserable to the point, and it was weather-related. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I didn't like that cold winter. It was the first winter of my life, yeah, and I actually too. checked out and yeah. reapplied to UC San Diego. A profound error yeah. on my part, but, you know, all's well, well that ends well. It worked out pretty well. Yeah. No, like that first winter in New York, I was... Uh, yeah. It's like, I was whoa. just, this is not natural. It, that's what I thought. It isn't natural. I said, I was indoors all the time. Really? Well, I was, no, there was snow falling on me. There was frozen water falling on the, from the sky <laughs> yeah, onto my body. And I was like in my mind shouting at the people on the street, you don't have to live like this. <laughs> move, move. Yeah. Why are you here? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, the dirty snow on the curbs oh, in Boston. Disgusting. I thought, you mean dirt and disgusting. snow can combine? Yeah. It was, Oh, that's a... Freezes and is there until May. Southern California boys, it's like growing up under an abalone shell in a way. You're a little bit, um, um, a little innocent. Totally, totally naive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well... What questions do you have for us? Well, I... um, I want to say that you never have to pull punches. I can see you <laughs> veering away. There's a couple of things reading Green and Blue Mars where I was surprised and wished I had a, a chance, and I actually do have a chance with the e-books, to go back and do a little bit of revision where where um, this scene where Sax and Michelle are sitting on the cliff watching the 
the 150-foot waves come in and crash against the cliff, and they're just chatting. It's a whole chapter. It's kind of beautiful. But at one point, Sachs, or Michelle, it's probably Michelle, says, well, uh, patriarchy's over now. And Sachs is going, yeah, patriarchy's over now. And I'm thinking what, what Sachs should have said was, how would we know? Right. How would we know? Because we're men. And so uh, we would need to check in with our, our women friends on this and see what they would say about this. And Sa- that is a perfect Sachs line because he's such a rational guy to have said, you know, how could you get outside your own box? And Michelle, of course, is a wild man who is willing to theorize at all moments about anything and very much a symbolic thinker. And it might be true because I was interested in patriarchy and feminism and if utopia is going to be utopia, then everybody has to be equal. And the book is working on that project. But, but that was a missed opportunity. And then another one I would say, and there must be more that you guys noticed being younger and in a different structure of feeling than I was when I wrote it and when I grew up. Um, what was it? Oh, Sachs, when he's confronted with Bao, the, the young woman uh, mathematical genius. Right. He's going, geez, a woman mathematical genius. Yeah. Who, who would have thunk it? Yeah. Um, and really, in the early 90s, that was a completely common perception. It would have been, right. 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 Yeah. And, and didn't, I mean, a woman just won the Fields Medal for the first time ever? Right, right this exactly. Year? So, we're know, in a different moment a now. And, but again, Sachs could have said, uh, well, he was born... You know, about the same time as you guys, Sachs Russell, in terms of, uh, um, but he could have been um, aware enough that by the time he runs into Bao, it should have been more obvious. Like, okay, finally I get to see one myself, but I've heard all about them. You only have to tweak a few sentences to get them in compliance with a... Uh, a more modern well, sensibility. But I, aren't you aren't you pointing out sort of artifacts of your own historical moment, that of your own historical limitations that are, you're finding on your own novel now and trying to? Yeah, but now I want to change it. Yeah, but <laughs> it's too late. No, it's part of the it's part of the well, historical record. See, I think about changing it because um, when Red, Red Mars was published with about 300 errors, and some of them were profound errors of physics. It was in an English major myself. I didn't understand, and some of the um, Donna. Shirley, who ran the Mars program at NASA at JPL, uh, was driving me around in the rain in Pasadena saying, well, did you know that um, uh, in a blimp it would do you no good to have a propeller out the window because you're going the same speed as the wind itself? I'm going, oh, shit. (laughs) She says, but I have a solution for that. And while she's driving in rain in Pasadena, she's saying, just do this, 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 this. Well, I did all that. So about uh, printing 18 of Red Mars, you get a corrected Red Mars. And I can still do corrections. And as long as they fit at the bottom of the page. So sure. you don't have to change the next page. So it's like oh. a jigsaw puzzle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, right, you have to, never, the yeah. correction has to be exactly the same length to the, to the <laughs> character. Wow. Yeah. But yeah. I can do that. Yeah. yeah. So I might, actually. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. It, it's true what you say. It's a, at this point, it's a historical document of the <laughs> 90s. And it's, there's so much of it that is the 90s that there's no reason to try to tweak it up to 2020. Not really. I mean, it, and it, I mean, it also, you know, it, I, I think, I mean, I feel like this is something I've fairly consistently said in the, on the podcast. I mean, I think that they're, the books are always letting you, they're always letting you think about things like assumptions about gender, right? And there are moments, there are definitely moments just to take gender as an example that I, you know, I would sort of, I would say something different, right? Um, but I feel like part of the way in which these books work is, um, 
rather than uh, sort of giving you like a set of declarations about how things are, they make um, almost every like social historical phenomenon available to you to ask a question about or think something else about, right? So they don't feel legislative or prescriptive in the way in which they write about gender. And that has something to do with the fact that, yeah, they're actually, they're full of women, which, uh, you know, I think to somebody who uh, doesn't read a lot of science fiction, would not seem noticeable, but to people who are a science fiction reader, I mean, like, that's actually, like, slightly depressingly extraordinary, at least for the moment at which those novels come out, right? Yeah, well, um, the, it, if you were paying attention in the 70s, you really, uh, then Russ, for a young man, Russ should have been like a slap to the face, after which you start laughing, because you've been awakened by some kind of a, a you know some kind of Buddhist enlightenment. Oh, everybody's uh, the same. Uh, gender is a small feature of a larger landscape of humanity. Well, this is a important realization, and we and of course it's not it's not at all universal on the planet today, and so it, it it's a slow progress, but. For me, um, Maya and Nadia, and now you kind of resuscitated Anne in my head, but Maya and Nadia especially, they weren't like me. I read in, I'd never been to Russia, but I read intensively in uh, Russian women translated into English and got a sense of, the, like the Women's Decameron by a Volona, Volonanskaya, a um, uh, hundred stories by ten Russian women uh, as they're in a birthing clinic waiting through the night. Um, well, these were profound experiences. And, and those two, especially, I would say, because Nadia's kind of more like me, or I don't even know how to say this, but Maya's a stolid and steady character, trustworthy, and that's a hard character to write. Is But Maya is a drama queen of the utmost, and I thought, I'm kind of... Uh, either I love Maya or I'm like Maya or she's surprising the hell out of me especially in Green Mars and in Blue Mars because in Red Mars she's not yet formed it's like chapter 2 you don't know who she looks like a manipulator but she doesn't have any depths but in Green when she's experiencing body dysmorphic disorder and then in Blue I thought this was one of the great uh, chapters of that book near the end Maya uh, posts all of her men except for friendship with sex well it was um the book made things happen that I didn't plan, and it, it came through the the people and very often the women. So I, what I concluded was, as a, what a novelist wants is to get out of the way and not be there. And so it's not ex- about self-expression; it's about um, channeling other voices uh-huh. and trying to see, let other people speak, and you're the transmitter. So if you were to read my Orange County novel that I think you will love is The Gold Coast. <laughs> uh-huh. in, I mean, I wrote it in 86. It's about um, Orange County in the year 2020 or whatever, but it's really about Orange County in 86. And so um, I think you'll find a lot of familiarity there. And in fact, there's a character, you know, Kim Robinson, Jim Hutchison, and um, my, me, my friends, my family. This is an autobiographical novel. It's what the 70s felt like in symbolic terms. But the Mars books, I am not in that trilogy well how did that happen I have no idea but um, it feels like a a kind of a blessing to realize how completely I'm not there how how alienated I am from that text and that I don't remember writing it I can't believe that I wrote it and I can read it with some appreciation now because I've forgotten it 
and it, and and it is as you what you've done for me is to bring it back to the characters and away from the the political economy and the terraforming the scientific stuff as if that was the stuff that mattered when really that was the symbology or the the enabling device to get to a, a novel about people living right. a long time together in a village it's yeah. really <laughs> what it comes down to interesting yeah. Yeah. interesting yeah i mean that's that's so interesting though because it's the also i mean i think that my um you know my sort of like critical tendency is like i am not especially interested in authors apologies yeah well i, <laughs> I mean no i can, you know yeah and and uh and also it's funny because I, I would say like partly why i like science fiction is i'm not all that interested in characters either but but i think that like you know the characters in the mars trilogy are something you know they're not about like producing a version of like you know on the page of like psychic psychological depth or something they're doing some they're doing something else right they're about interaction and entanglement but i the idea of you know the the mars books for you being something you know you're not in and 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 that you didn't have a plan for them is just like hilarious and amazing um but they're also so uh you know your novels are so deeply entwined with each other you know and i think that they i felt this when i was in winter i taught aurora and that's the first time i've taught one of your books and I taught it alongside the dispossessed which was really uh, great mm, wow. um, yeah. uh, and wow. like hearing students talk about it I felt like oh yeah this is like you know and, and a bunch of them had read in a class the quarter before they had read New York 2140 mm. um, so they were all deeply upset about climate change and, and life ending but also you know um, just listening to them talk I was like in, in a way that is not usual for students in my classes they're like getting at something that I would describe as like, well, this is kind of like the Kim Stanley Robinson thing, right? These are the kinds of ideas that your books let us think about um, in a way that I think is amazingly kind of um, coherent across your novels, you know? And it, it's about like being able to think about history in certain kinds of ways, to be able to think about like human persons without being sentimental or in some ways to be humanist without being humanist in like a kind of gross way, to be really interested in problems that people can't solve, that we won't be able to solve, but that we're going to go on trying to solve, uh, a kind of interest in like daily life that uh, is, I think, uh, so important to think about. Anyway, I just like, I, I, I think that that like, um, and the Mars books are like, man, all of that stuff is there and it's there in such complicated like in really beautiful ways. So obviously you did write those books, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I, I, I feel happy, and, uh, and your podcast has made me happy, and I want to thank you, and I also want to thank all your listeners, because many of the people listening to your podcast are listening because they've read the books and they want to hear more about them. And, yeah. and they read them over and over again, yeah, too. And the, books, uh, and the books kind of <laughs> unpack, and yeah. uh, there are sentences you can enjoy uh, uh, second and third time around, but I want to thank all them. Some of them write into you, some of them write into the various sites that I mean I'm not on the internet but I, I, I check into it from time to time and my friend Kimon who runs the uh, KSR.info site he's a, a great guy and helps a lot in keeping me in contact with this community and my publicist at Orbit but also the people writing in and I, I'm, I shouldn't even name names uh, uh, because it would be representative of the whole crowd but I, some, I will 
there's um, there's an Angela, there's a Marco. There are people who are checking in, and um, and they're they're. It's wonderful to see because I love novels so much myself as a reader. My my greatest goal would be to have other people liking my novels in that same way. But I'm trapped inside them, like being trapped inside a closet or a, a hall of mirrors. I never can tell for sure if my books are doing for other people what other novels are doing for me. There's no way of knowing, except for a kind of a um, back-of-the-head double mirror effect of when things like this happen. And so it's been really um, a wonderful experience for me to have this happen. And I just want to thank everybody, but you two in particular, because it's been also it's fun in my garden. Usually, <laughs> I'm just I'm weeding nuts edge. I'm going fuck this nuts edge. You know, it, it's 25 years, and I'm losing the battle. Uh, it, it's w- worse now than when I began. But now I'm listening to you guys, and it's just kind of an exercise. Oh, me and my nuts edge. I'm so happy out here. So it's a good thing. We have to keep it going just to uh, yeah. a- aid the battle of the nuts edge. Yeah. Although I gave up on that. It's like the Vietnam War. I declared victory, and I got out of there. Um, well, I have one more question. Okay. Dodgers have lost the World Series twice in a row now. Yep. Is this their year? Yeah, it could be. Why? I got my fingers, I got my fingers crossed. If they get one good long reliever... Is, can Clayton the Kershaw trade, win a World Series? I hope so. He needs to do good in the playoffs. He, I think he's just, in his head, it just is a... It's a, a you mess. know, I play softball every Thursday night, yeah. and it's a humbling game. Yeah. Um, um, bad things happen, even to the best players in the world. And so I think he's, um, you know, and also he's just part of a team. So yeah, um, losses are put on pitchers they're entirely their fault, because if more runs had been scored, then they'd look great. Uh, but I love the Dodgers. I'm always uh, watching them, listening to them, uh, um, and following their fortunes because if you don't have a team that you're obsessing about sports are meaningless it's meaningless yeah it's like oh x y z yeah you know that basketball series probably was magnificent yeah i didn't care yeah so um when vince gully passed away though i no he didn't pass away he retired (laughs) oh no when he retired sorry (laughs) don't blow my mind he's gonna he's gonna sorry He'll come back any day now, right? And like be the broadcaster. He's like, uh, he's like uh, what's her name? Hiroko. He's Hiroko. Because <laughs> he, when he retired, uh, yeah. I really felt like, oh, I might not watch another Dodger game. But they, they keep me coming back. But he was just unbelievable. Yeah. You watch him and it's just like poetry uh, yes. every night. He would shape the story of the game. He would say, the start of the eighth inning, and go, you know what? This is the crucial at-bat of the game because those last two times, that guy almost got a hit, and this is his third time around. He would shape the game. And talk about characters, too. He can actually create a character as a, a baseball player, turn, a, turn him into a character. Yeah. Talk about like, well, you know, the, you know, there's the, you know, the kid from Escondido comes uh, comes through tonight <laughs> yeah. or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just amazing. Well, if we can end with a Dodger story, I will say that my dad took me to the L.A. Coliseum in sometime in the summer of 1959. I was seven years old, and there were 80,000 people to see the Dodgers wow. playing the Giants in a baseball game in the Coliseum, which had this weird yeah. configuration. Sandy Koufax struck out 18 Giants and <laughs> gave up a home run to Willie Mays. Wow. And he struck out the side in the eighth inning on 10 pitches. Wow. And as a seven-year-old, I've written this up. It's in two or three of my uh, stories and novels. Uh-huh. The sense of a child looking around at adults going crazy and realizing we never grow up. Yeah. We're yeah. children forever yes. in this way. Yes. 
oh, it was a lovely moment, and, yeah. and I was there. And they actually, on the 25th anniversary of that game, they wrote it up in the L.A. Times. Wow. And, of course, Vince Scully was yeah. throughout the whole thing. So um, it, it was a, a thing for my dad and me, and it's something that I have loved my whole life. And in my softball experiences, in my at the tail end of, like, in my posthumous um, <laughs> uh, softball career, I still love it. Like, if I get a single that is just a ground ball between the first baseman and the second baseman, which is pretty much all I can hope for at this point, well, I'm just as happy as can be. It's like I will give up a Nebula word for a double. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the uh, title of the episode, I think. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Stan. Yeah, pleasure. Pleasure. <laughs>